This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. On Sunday night, good friend of 980 CFPL, good friend of London Live, Ali Shabar, tweeted something that now has 500 likes, as it should. And I want to read that to you. We read it yesterday, but if you didn't hear it, this is what it says. It says, to all the parents who tucked in their babies tonight with knots in their belly, I feel you. To all the teachers who stand tall tomorrow, I salute you. To all the administration whose efforts made tomorrow possible, I thank you. And to all the students, we're there for you. And I thought that was incredible. That sums up a lot of what everybody's feeling and a lot of the ways we should be feeling. And as parents now wonder about their kids on day two, we have to wonder, is it any easier now? That was on Sunday night that Ali posted that tweet. Yesterday was the first day of school for a lot of kids in this area. Today is the second day of school. For some, it is still the first day of school because we do have staggered starts. But for some, this is already day two. Is, is it any easier on day two? Let's talk with Allie right now. Allie, thanks so much for what you tweeted, and thanks so much for taking some time for us. How you been? Very good, Mike. Very good. We're like like every other parent out there, a little, little uh, nervous, regardless of COVID or not COVID. First day of school brings jitters, right? Even when we're kids and when we're parents, there's still first day of school jitters, and so... Uh, um, the kids are happy. I have two little girls, uh, one that's going into grade three and one that's, uh, going into kindergarten and they are beyond excited, beyond excited about returning back to school. So how do you think the feelings are right now? Do you have either of your daughters who have actually started back to school? Yeah. So they, they, yesterday was their first day. So they're in school, uh, Monday, Tuesday, and then they're off Thursday, Friday, uh, Wednesday, Thursday, and back on Friday. And then it's then on as of Friday, everybody's back uh, normal, right? So, uh, but yeah, you know they they're eight and five, and if my kids are kind of a microcosm of the larger experience, right? So they jumped out of bed and they were excited and they picked out their dresses, and you know we had to go twelve rounds with my five year old over what you know what dress she wanted to wear and how she wanted to have her hair done, right? So they haven't had that feeling since March. It's been six months basically, and uh, uh, you know they're. They're just they're just thrilled, thrilled about being back at school. Is there any mention from either of them at the age of five or eight about COVID-19 or about the way that they're being asked to do school in this pandemic? Yeah, I mean, they conceptualize it in their, you know, at their own level. Right. So when we as parents and, you know, my wife and I, like every other parent out there, we've had to have those conversations with them about, you know, well, you have to wear a mask and here's why, right? But we, we don't try to go, you, you don't want to scare them and you don't want to, um, you don't want to damper the return to school, but you do want them to have an understanding at their appropriate level in terms of not just wear this mask because we're telling you to, but here's why you need to wear the mask, right? Or try to keep distancing. Well, not because you don't, we don't want you to see your best friend or, you know, or to hold hands or do whatever it is that they do. Uh, but here's why. And, and, you know, uh, they're pretty smart. I mean, kids, kids, I understand, you know, in kindergarten, one, two, three, and on onwards, they, you know, but they're always, you, you have kids, Mike, they're always listening. They're always watching, even when you think they're not right. And so we have to be uh, vigilant in terms of trying to help them understand 
why it is that we're asking them to do what we are asking them to do. Ali Trabar joining us. As we talk about being a dad, a father of two young girls during a pandemic and having them go back to school. So you mentioned there is always jitters. You're always wondering as a parent, how is the day going for the kids? And usually you don't find out until they either come off the bus or come out the door of the school if you're picking them up. And so what was yesterday like for you? Was it much different than it would have been last year? More anxiety about the same? Where would you put it? Well, I'll tell you this. Um, the night before, when I sent that tweet, basically, uh, my wife and I had put our girls to sleep. And, you know, you, you, night before school, first day of school, you tuck them in, you read them a story, you give them a kiss. And then my wife and I closed, slowly closed the door and we walked out into the hallway. And, and my wife shot me a look, kind of like, oh, my God, it's, you know, it's we've discussed it and we've debated it. And it's always been this kind of abstract discussion about safety concerns and, you know, distancing and masks. And then it, it was like, it's like it's game time. And I think I was saying to you yesterday, uh, like it's almost like kind of that pre-game anxiety. And it's, I know it's not a perfect example, but that, you know, those jitters before you have a big game or you have a big, you know, uh, event, it's that type of thing. And so we, um, uh, I said, I said, babe, everything's going to be good. You know, the, the, the administration, the board, the teachers, the custodians, the school bus drivers, everybody's been working diligently for the last number of number of months and you know we got this we got this and uh and that's kind of that's when i sat down and i just felt like if i'm feeling this way and my wife's feeling this way i bet you there are thousands of people in this city and probably hundreds of thousands of people across this province and country that are feeling the same way and that's why kind of that was the impetus or the motivation to just flip out that tweet real quickly and just say hey if you're feeling like this you're not alone i feel this way too if you know uh, but but we're in this together, and we got we got this. How did you sleep Sunday to Monday? Um, yeah, good. I, honestly, I I I I'm confident that um, the teachers, the principals, the administration, everybody's done everything. We there's plans and there's backup plans, and and you know there's that old adage, Mike. It's you know you worry about the things you can control and the things you can't control. You don't worry about, and it, it's just. You know, we were we, we can control only so much, and we're sending the kids back. And uh, um, you know, what will be will be. But I mean, we have top tier educators, we have top tier staff, we have everybody in this. And I just I take comfort and solace in the fact that uh, um, you know everything's under control. Well, let's let's hope that that continues. Do you let yourself come up with a contingency plan if someone at the school? test positive or if you know something like that takes place where you have to think okay do we send our kids now yeah and, and so i know that's a concern that a lot of parents are probably having saying okay well uh what happens if right and i i i know that it's 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 a reasonable concern and it and it's a thing where um i bet, I bet you every parent's having some variation of that thought right but i have faith in our 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 medical officials, our chief medical officer of health, uh, you know, uh, in the region, um, our, our officials that um, have really been uh, guiding us and directing us uh, every step of the way. And we've done, I mean, Mike, we've, we've done a pretty good job collectively, we uh, as a province and as a city. Uh, I know that we have some hot spots across the province, uh, you know, Toronto or Ottawa or other places. But if you look at London as, as you know, we've done pretty good up, up until very, very, very recently. And, uh, 
I know we saw some numbers yesterday that were a little higher than we're, we're accustomed to, but hopefully that's, um, you know, uh, hopefully that's a blip there. But, uh, you know, insofar as the kids are concerned, you know, we'll, we'll play it, play it by ear. And, and if the reality, current reality holds great. And if things have to change, well, we'll adjust on the fly. Right. So it's all we can do, right? That's, that's it. You know, sometimes you got to, I like my sports analogies, but sometimes you got to call an audible at the line of scrimmage sometimes, right? So every parent, uh, <laughs> every parent's probably having a variation of that uh, conversation. But my kids reported back. They were thrilled, excited, burst through the front door. They were, uh, they couldn't wait to get back to school today. They were just, uh, you know, they, they jumped up, uh, ready, ready to go back and see their friends. And, uh, I, they'll acclimate pretty quickly. They always do. That right there says so much. That right there says so much to how it is going because you could have the girls coming home saying, I'm afraid to go back or I don't want to go back. That says so much that they jump up saying, yeah, let's do it again. Yeah, that's, that's I mean, that's proof is in the pudding, right? And so if they had come back and said, Dad, uh, I, I don't know if I want to go back. I don't know. We, you know, it was weird or I didn't like wearing the masks or I, I just, I didn't. It wasn't. It was absolutely the opposite. It was, oh, my God. This was amazing. We can't wait till tomorrow. And, and this morning, you know, they jumped out of bed. My wife and I got them dressed. They were having breakfast, getting them out, out the door, and they were just ear to ear, just smiles, right? And so that, that in and of itself, Mike, uh, really tells me all I need to know insofar as uh, at least my kids' uh, perspective. That they're, they're rearing, ready, ready, uh, ready to get back to it. Well, Ali, thanks for giving us this perspective of a parent because it's a unique one. You have to have kids and oftentimes young kids to even have those feelings. And thanks so much for sharing with us. Keep safe. We'll talk soon. Thanks, Mike. All the best, my friend. That's Ali Jabbar. As we look at what it is like, that, that anxiety that exists and the fact that you've got to place trust in as much as the plan starts with hope, you have to place some trust in that. And I think it's it's the same thing where when we like to knock politicians, we have to remember that there are very few politicians, I won't say zero, but very few politicians who report for work and take a look at whatever the landscape is and say, all right, what am I going to screw up today? That's not the way they look at it. They're looking to make a difference. They're looking to do things right. Doesn't always happen. You're always going to find bad apples. But with teachers, administrators, custodial staff, they're there to carry things out. And in any conversation you could have with a teacher leading up to it, other than anyone who may have had some real anxious moments about getting back into the class, the message was simple. We're going to find a way to make this work because it's about the kids and we're going to make them as safe as we can. And that's what you have to rely on. And as much as you get mistrust and misinformation and all sorts of things, that's what they're there to do. And how much of a tribute is it to how school works if you hear other stories like Allie's where the kids come home and you ask them how their day was, yes, many of them had to wear masks. Yes, they were told to stay further apart. Yes, they had to wash their hands a whole lot. There were different rules for washrooms and different rules for recess and entering the school. And it, it was probably a lot. But when they say, it was a great day, and I can't wait to go back tomorrow, you know a lot of people. 
Game time. Ali Trabar said it earlier today. We were talking with him about what it was like to be a parent of two young elementary school-aged children. And as much as he talked about the anxiety that comes with the first day of school at any time, and especially how it's been this year, he said his children were ready to go back for day two, which is a testament to what was going on in their classrooms and how things were working out. It's it's uncharted territory. We don't know what the future holds in any realm, but you've got to take it that one day at a time, that one step at a time. We do have school that is resuming at the elementary school level and at the secondary school level. And there may have been some questions as to whether we would ever get to this point. There is certainly some unrest in Quebec where the teachers' union there is, or a teachers' union there, is looking to get information on the back-to-school plan, how that was carried out. There have certainly been questions as to how the plan is working Here in Ontario, there are still concerns about the way that some elementary schools are working, classroom size. It's easy to say, hey, high school can be half online and half in school, so we'll limit the class sizes there without a problem. Elementary, we can't do it, so we'll do the best we can. And that seemed to be the way that it was laid out. And you might think, okay, well, there's pushback from that, but it's been, okay, let's make what we can out of what exists. Let's check in on how things are going now into day two of back to school for elementary school teachers, students, and staff. Craig Smith is the president of the Thames Valley Local of the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario. Craig, thanks for taking some time. It's a pleasure, Mike. Always nice to chat with you. Well, it's great to talk with you. How are we doing after one day? Was your inbox filled with concerns, or was it a day that kind of moved along as well as can be expected? I I think it's the latter. Uh, I think there was a lot of conversation and concern and, you know, work that had happened over the summer months. Um, Those concerns and, as you mentioned, you know, concerns about the whole reopening plan itself, I think, still exist, but... Uh, teachers are of a type. We get on with the job. And um, yesterday, I think, was reasonably quiet. There were a couple of uh, questions that we had. Uh, today has been something similar. I think it's important to remember, as excited as students and teachers are to be back in the elementary panel in what they call the in-person learning schools, so the brick-and-mortar schools, it's only about 20% of the students. So we have a staggered entry. We know that that's accumulating over the week. The full remote learning schools don't start until tomorrow. So I would say by Friday we will have uh, everything firing on all cylinders and we'll see where we are. Right now I think it's been a managed and a staged reentry, and I think things have gone reasonably well um, at this stage. As we add in more students, obviously you add in uh, a little bit of a tougher situation. When we talk about class sizes, what do we know about class sizes in this area for Thames Valley and how large they may be at the elementary level? So I think the overall averages, uh, and that's how staffing is largely done at the boards, uh, at the level of the boards, you know, the class size averages are lower, you know, but they're not... Uh, that doesn't always reflect the reality of what's happening in various schools. So we know that we will have 
schools as students continue to show up there are those class sizes increase so we have fewer classes uh, in the schools themselves because of the move to full remote learning uh, but those class sizes you know the averages are low um, I think we'll know by the end of the week what we're looking at but I think overall our position has always been that the class sizes right now are, are, are too big in the elementary panel for the situation that we're facing right now. And when you look at how that may play out, is there any way that you can address that after this year has started, after everybody is in, or is it, well, it is what it is? Well, there's a lot of moving parts. Uh, one of the most unpredictable things in all of this, of course, and it sounds obvious to say it, is we just don't know what COVID-19 has in store for us. And so, you know, that wild card, we know that there have already been an uptick in the overall numbers. So the last couple of days were not particularly, um, you know, heartwarming about the, the, the numbers, but there are, there are isolation, uh, you know, there are places where there are hot spots. So, we have been very, very fortunate in the Southwest. Our numbers have been quite low. Throw in a variable like colleges and universities coming back, and we see that there's been spikes uh, already at Western and uh, and other places. So, you know, we don't know what COVID-19 has planned for us. Uh, the other the other piece really will be, you know, these large concentrations of students in elementary schools um, for a prolonged period of time, um, and that's going to be a big challenge for us. We'll see how this plays out um, as the students arrive. So we're going to have large numbers of people in relatively close contact for extended periods of time with points of contact, and those points of contact are risk points. So, you know, there are still some concerns about where we are. We hope nothing happens, but we need to be prepared for, you know, the eventuality if there is an outbreak. President of the Thames Valley Local of the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario, Craig Smith, joining us. Craig, how do you feel about the protocol? Should there be someone who is perhaps exhibiting symptoms or perhaps even is diagnosed with COVID-19? What do you feel about what the province has put in place to deal with that kind of a situation in an elementary school setting? Yeah, I think there's a, a bit of a delineation there between sort of the public playing out of that, you know, in areas outside of schools. Somehow schools got magically defined as places where you didn't have to physically distance by two meters. Uh, it was okay to be together in large groups of groups larger than 10 uh, or 50 uh, for a prolonged period of time. Uh, I, there are some concerns, really, about you know, how this is going to play out in the, the schools. I mean, the fact of the matter is, as I said, you've got a lot of people in uh, confined spaces uh, over a prolonged period of time. Um, it isn't really a question of uh, if, it's when uh, the outbreaks happen. And so the question then becomes, what are the protocols to deal with that? So what happens if there's an outbreak in a classroom? What happens if there's an outbreak in a school? At what point do you have a, uh, enough schools affected that it affects the system operation? These are questions we don't have answered just yet, but that's obviously the thing that we're going to you know, uh, keep an eye on. Hope is a good thing, but it's not a strategy. And so we have to be prepared to respond when uh, there are outbreaks, and I think that's going to be the next test is how we respond. Hope is a good thing, but it's not a strategy. Well said. We're talking with Craig Smith, president of the Thames Valley Local of the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario. How closely are you monitoring boards that have gone back earlier or even other provinces and how they're handling things? 
Well, I think, you know, there's a lot of coverage around that in the media and in the social media. We know that there are challenges throughout the country, uh, various districts. Most provinces have adopted a, a strategy similar to Ontario's. Ontario's and Alberta's look very similar. You know, there there are variations on a theme. Um, you know, so it is important to keep an eye on uh, on where the outbreaks are happening and are they happening. And we know wherever the schools have been opened, there have been some challenges in British Columbia and Alberta, Quebec. Um, I have no doubt we'll be in the same situation. It comes back to the fundamental point. You know, we talk about class size, and it isn't just about class size. It's about sort of a cluster of students and a teacher that can be isolated and pods one from another. And we're not there yet. We're not at that mindset. The only model that's really got that that works reasonably well is that in Denmark, and we haven't followed that model. So we'll see where we get to um, and if there is some movement. I mean, at the end of the day, we still need the provincial government to make some decisions and move on things so that the boards can actually be able to afford to do some things uh, that may be in the better interest of the public health of the students and the people that work with them. Craig, did you like what Denmark was doing? I think uh, based on the facts that you see and in terms of the efficiency of the running of that system, it is the model that's worked best anywhere. Um, they do have small small classes, um, but the cluster of, of num- the number could be 10. I think they're at 10 or 12. You know, the number of 15's been bandied about. It could be a little bit higher than that, potentially. The issue is there that the, the teacher and the students are working together uh, all the time, and there is very, there's no other points of contact. There's very limited contact within the schools. Um, where they have had, you know, uh, incidences of COVID, they've been able to isolate, contact, trace, and, and keep a lid on that. Um, they only put mask wearing in, you know, three or four weeks ago as, an, as a precaution more than anything else. Their system it continues to run. They have not had the problems that we have seen, say, south of the border and other places. So I think as a model, it, it, it gives us some instruction. Other countries, though, uh, ones that we wouldn't normally think of, you know, North uh, uh, Korea, uh, Japan, China, um, uh, uh, um, Vietnam. Uh, these are places that have done really, really well in managing this, so I think it's it kind of incumbent on us to take a look at what they're doing right and see if there's some things that we can do uh, to make things safer for everyone. Because nobody disagrees. We want the schools open. We want students to be with their teachers as best they can be, not only because it's important for the students, because it's a really key economic driver to help keep things moving. And if we don't get this right, then I think we're in some serious trouble. And in terms of all of those countries that you mentioned, uh, a lot of them have, they'll call them pods, some will call them cocoons, but the number of students interacting with each other or with teachers, it's kept very, very low, and it's it's really kept that way, right? That's right. I mean, it aligns with sort of the social bubbles they have outside of the schools. And so we recognize, you know, there's going to be intersections where those cross, where they, they meet. But I think the, the point is, like, in our, in our system in Ontario, what, you know, we seem to be looking at, certainly in the Thames Valley Board, is, is trying to limit it to three points of contact. So students would have no more than contact with three teachers. Well, that sounds good on paper. It's harder to manage and, and make happen you know, from an administrative point of view and from a teacherly point of view, it becomes really difficult to manage that. So, you know, um, there's always risk at point of contact. There's there's risk involved uh, of spread. And so the more we can do to minimize those contacts, uh, the better. And I think that's always been the position of Federation. That's the kind of conversation we've wanted. It's not some didactic conversation of it has to be this number of kids. It's 
how we structure that pod to keep the student and the teacher safe so that we're able to continue with the work of learning, which is our critical, that's our mission, uh, but also to facilitate that so that parents know that their kids are safe. They're not going to be, you know, uh, bringing home COVID to the home and that the parents can rest assured the kids are safe while they go to work. I mean, all of those pieces need to fit together, and we're not quite there yet, I don't think. Here's hoping that we can make those little tweaks. We've heard that hinted by the education minister, and it'll depend on how things look once everybody gets back into school. We're still in the midst of that staggered start. Craig, one final thing, and we're talking with Craig Smith, the president of the Thames Valley Local of the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario, and that is in Quebec they seem to be very concerned about a lack of transparency in the plan that was laid out for their province. How do you feel about the transparency? It might be the, the plan itself has holes, but in at least what you have been told by the Ontario government? Well, on that piece, I mean, you know, the government, the government, I think, needs to be held to account in terms of the timing and the the lack of sort of urgency around the, the planning for return. Everybody knew there'd be return. Uh, planning for this could have happened, you know, started happening in April. The information that's been shared publicly, the information that's shared with the board locally, the board and and the the local have been working in pretty close contact and so i don't think there's a lot of information that hasn't been shared i think the bigger concern here are the assumptions that underline the plan and and the kind of misinformation that's going around you know the minister's talking about class sizes being reduced they're simply not i mean that that's not true so you know the the transparency piece i think when it comes to the operation with the board i think we've had uh, some good um, some good contact. I think the issue here has been around how that uh, the, the health and safety pieces affect us as workers. That has an impact on students. And I know the four affiliates have taken action and, and made a presentation to the Ontario Labor Relations Board around those pieces. Slightly different tack than what they seem to be uh, undertaking in Quebec. I mean, at the end of the day, um, by relative degrees, the more information that people have, the better. And let's have honest conversations about where we are so that we can make informed decisions about where we think we want the system to be going. And I think we can we can do some more work on that regard, too. But I think when it comes to the work with the board, locally we've had information and we've worked with what we've got. Craig, thank you for this conversation. Keep safe. You too, Mike. Thanks so much. Always a pleasure. That's Craig Smith, president of the Thames Valley Local of the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario. And so if, if you look for the, the criticisms of what is going on, from the standpoint of the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario, Craig just outlined it there. The planning itself took too long, where this could have started earlier. And, you know, the the boards themselves have not complained about this, and they would have every right to. They haven't complained. And that is that with less than a week to go, they were still rewriting curriculums. Or, sorry, they were still rewriting timetables because you had students who were opting out because parents didn't feel like they were comfortable with having their child go. Uh, You also had very little time to hire teachers. Last Thursday, we talked with both directors of education from the Thames Valley District School Board and the London District Catholic School Board, which service this area, and both admitted, we're still hiring teachers. Back last Thursday. Well, why? How? And they weren't complaining about it, but they were stating fact. They were still hiring teachers. 
because they had to. They hadn't had a chance to know how many they were going to need. And that falls on the province, where the province could have easily set August 1st as being a date, saying, all right, however the virus is dealing with our society at the time of August 1st, here we go. Let's get the education plan going, and then we tweak. Instead, it carried on and on and on and on. And we needed we needed things to be done a little bit. And I know the announcements were coming, but the questions weren't answered. There are still questions lingering. And they could have done a much better job of that. I really believe that. And there could be a lot more complaining coming from the teachers' unions or coming from boards of education. And there hasn't been. They're doing the job. And I think we need to give them credit for that. There are times when I look at the fight between teachers' unions and provinces, and and I shake my head. Really? Is this what we're doing right now? In this case, they've gone to work. They They have gone into situations that aren't fantastic, that have too many kids, or not enough space, or whatever it is, and they're going and they're making it work. And they need credit for that. Terry Fox Run comes up on Sunday. It is held on the same Sunday of September each and every year. And since Terry Fox and his Marathon of Hope took place, we have seen over $800 million raised. And Terry Fox went from someone who not very many people knew when he began his Marathon of Hope to a Canadian icon when he sadly passed away after having to halt his run just outside Thunder Bay. And the anniversary of that just passed. The Terry Fox run this year is going to be a little bit different. It's going to be virtual in a lot of counts. However, it is going to be very real for our next guest. Brent Carruthers is going to be running a marathon, and I don't believe Brent has run a marathon before. He's going to be running a marathon on Sunday as his part in this year's Terry Fox run as he raises money for the fight against cancer. Brent joins us now. Brent, how are things going? I'm doing great. How are you doing? Not too bad. And is this, in fact, your very first marathon? It is. It is. You've picked quite a time to do it. Well, I thought I'd take the opportunity with things being a little uh, a little unique this year and uh, getting to pick my own course. I thought, uh, with it being the anniversary, I'd just uh, do something a little bit different. Well, this is fantastic. And you are looking to raise money for the fight against cancer. If anybody wants to donate as we start to tell your story, where can they go? They can go straight to the uh, Terry Fox uh, webpage. It's terryfox.org. Um, if they want to donate through my name, they can search my last name, Carruthers, C-A-R-R-O-T-H-E-R-S, or they can just make a general donation as well through that page. Now, a lot of people are taking part this year, as always, and will be doing something virtually, as has been asked, in 2020. But You're running a marathon around the city of London, or the length of a marathon around the city of London. Where did the idea for this come from? I don't know. I I had been fooling around with the idea. I knew I was going to be doing the Terry Fox run uh, again this year. I've always enjoyed uh, going down to Springbank and doing the the Terry Fox Parkway. Um, So I knew I was going to be doing that. And then towards the end of August, um, 
just hearing a lot more about it being the 40th anniversary, and I was just trying to think of something a little unique and different. And uh, I, I've known since being a little boy that, you know, the things that he that Terry did uh, were incredible, and that being essentially running a marathon uh, every day for 143 days. And so I thought maybe to challenge myself a bit, I would try and, and run a marathon one day. So that's that's kind of where the, the thought came from. And um, I was too young when, when Terry ran through the city, but uh, I wanted to kind of retrace uh, part of the, the track through the city. So that's so how it came us, to be. Take us on your route. Where are you going to be running? And, and do you have a particular color shirt that we can watch out for you if people happen to be in their cars to honk or wave? Yeah, so I'm I'm going to uh I'm going to be wearing a, a white dry fit shirt, basically. And uh what I'm going to be doing is actually uh, on that dry fit shirt, it's gonna be covered in, in names. I'm going to write uh people's names that have been affected by cancer, um, or families that have been, uh as well as people that have donated and uh just to kind of bring awareness of how many people are impacted by cancer that uh, are, are special to, to me. And so um, I'll have a white dry fit shirt on with a bunch of Sharpie marker all over it. So um, my route, uh, I'll start in the north end. I, I live up by, by Masonville Mall. So I'm going to be heading east on Fanshawe Park Road to Highbury and then Highbury uh, south to Oxford. Oxford East to Veterans Memorial and then Veterans Memorial I'm going to head south to Dundas and that's kind of where when Terry came in in 1980 he came in Dundas Street so I'm going to go down Dundas uh, following all the street markers that uh, were put up in July showing his route and uh, normally Terry he turned right off of Dundas onto Richmond started heading north to Victoria Park um, but to make up mileage, um, just because Terry started outside of the city, I'm going to veer off from that path uh, for a little bit and head towards uh, the Terry Fox Parkway. And I'll be going in the Terry Fox Parkway to the memorial and essentially coming right back out the way I went in and making my way back to Dundas and Richmond. And then I will head north on Richmond to Victoria Park and continue to head north on Richmond to the city limits, um, just north of Sunningdale, as that was the way I'm told Terry exited the city when he left. Wow. So, what a yeah. well-thought-out tribute. Brent Carruthers joining us. As Brent plans to do this on Sunday, when are you beginning? Not that we want large crowds to come out and, and wish you well. Uh, we can't have that right now, but certainly what time of day are you going to be going through your route the the plan as of right now is 9 a.m is what i'll start okay 9 a.m and this is something in long distance running that you have been doing for a little while but a little while is is more focused on on the little this is not something you picked up at the age of 10 or the age of 20 when did you really start seriously running distances uh it would be about a year and a half ago now that I started running longer distances. And uh, so it, it's just something I kind of came to enjoy. And 
I don't know if this will start something else or, or not, but uh, I've, I've wanted to try and tackle this distance. So I thought, what better time? Absolutely. Brent Carruthers joining us on the Terry Fox run that comes up on Sunday. And if you go to the Terry Fox website, you can look up Brent's name, C-A-R-R-O-T-H-E-R-S, Carruthers, and you can donate that way if you want to help out. And, Brent, in, in writing down those names, have you done that to this point? Have, have you written the names on the shirt yet, or have you have you thought about when you might do that? They're, they're not on the shirt yet, no. They, I've been compiling a list, and it's amazing how uh, names just kind of keep popping up as far as uh, people that have been uh, affected by cancer. So uh, I'll probably do that a little later this week where I'll actually get it onto the shirt. What do you think that moment's going to be like for you? Doing the actual run? Well, I'd, I'd say writing the names on the shirt. Well, I think anything, anything um, visual kind of... Uh, you know, has a real impact as far as what, uh, it's, you, until you see it in front of you, um, you don't realize how many people have been affected. So uh, I'm sure it will be um, somewhat emotional. No doubt. Well, this entire run will be very emotional, no doubt. So Brent, congratulations on, on even putting this together, even coming up with this idea. How's the training been going? How do you feel? I, I feel good. I, I feel great, actually. And, and the support has been unbelievable. So uh, the response, I, I couldn't be happier. And uh, people uh, seem to be excited and very supportive. And it's, it's been truly, truly unbelievable. So I'm, I'm looking forward to it. And uh, I just want to have fun with it on Sunday and uh, enjoy, uh, enjoy it as much as I can. Brent, in a year when the Terry Fox run has been made very different from past years, you found a way to make it incredibly special. So thanks for doing that. Good luck with the run, and maybe we'll check in next week after you've had a little time to catch up. <laughs> All right. I appreciate the time, Mike. Thanks so much. Keep safe. You too. That's Brent Carruthers. And he has decided to map out, which he's done, a path that is the equivalent of a marathon, which is what Terry Fox would run in a day. He's done it around London, starting and going all the way down Fanshawe Park Road, eventually coming around down to Dundas, where Terry Fox ran into the city from outside the city as he was coming east to west, and that's going back to 1980. And if you remember what was a July 17th day, if you remember being on that street or being able to see Terry Fox, you know the kind of moment it had become as he reached deeper and deeper into Ontario, where this wasn't about being honked at coming through other provinces because he was on the side of the road. Everybody knew what was going on, and everybody appreciated what had happened for the number of days, 143 in a row, as Brent says, that Terry Fox had run a marathon on one leg as, at that point, someone who had beaten cancer only to have it return. So that's coming up on Sunday. If you want to take part in the Terry Fox run, easiest way to do it is to simply register, and it definitely is not too late. It is never too late to register 
this is something that happens each and every year on the same Sunday every year. And you can go to terryfox.org for all kinds of information on how virtual runs are being held. So that's terryfox.org. And while you're there, if you want to make a donation and support Brent, you're able to do that. Just search his last name, Carruthers, C-A-R-R-O. T-H-E-R-S at terryfox.org. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.